Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're gonna have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules, coronavirus edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We're all in this together, my friends, even if you don't consider me your friend. Nevertheless, we're all in this together. The day before yesterday, the U.S. passed a grim milestone, 100,000 deaths from COVID-19. That's almost a third of all the deaths from this thing worldwide. Even with that dire reminder of the severity of this disease, COVID fatigue is clearly setting in across this country. People are getting tired of being apart and having to celebrate holidays, birthdays, graduations, weddings, along with funerals, and so much more via Zoom calls. We're tired and we're getting sloppy as a result. Over the last few episodes of the show, we've looked at the pieces of the plan we need to safely reopen society, including testing, contact tracing, and quarantining. But the silver bullet we're all looking for is, of course, a vaccine a way to prevent us all from coming down with COVID-19 in the first place and just maybe letting us all go back to normal. Maybe the only change we'll see is we'll have a new tradition of wearing face masks when we're sick, maybe. Well, there's been a lot of confusing information about a news person's five W's and that one H. That's the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the vaccine. Here to spell out those details for us is Dr. Anna Durbin. She's a professor of international health at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she specializes in evaluating experimental vaccines. Dr. Durbin, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Anna? Absolutely, and it's my great pleasure to be with you today. So, Anna, how do you make a vaccine? How do you do it? So I look at the virus and I say, what looks like it might be a good target for a vaccine? And we can do that by either getting antibodies from people and seeing what they recognize or doing animal studies. Then we say, okay, this is my target. How do I make it? And we can make it uh, through just protein expression. We can take a little piece of the virus and we say, this is our target. We're going to make that. Or we can take a whole virus and kill it and use that. But we decide what our target is. Once we've made our target, then what we have to do is uh, make it in 
good manufacturing processes so it's safe, we make it, we give it to animals, does it make a good immune response? If it does, we say, okay, we're gonna give it to people, we give it to a small number of people, 20 people, 50 people, just to make sure it's safe, we don't have anything bad happen. Then we say, is there immune response? Do we see antibodies or something else? Once we see those, we say, okay, we're going to move on to give it to larger people. We again look for safety in the larger numbers of people, generally a few hundred. We look at their immune response. Does the immune response still look good? Do we think it's going to protect? And then if we want to move forward, we do what we call the gold standard acid test, the efficacy trial. And to do an efficacy trial, we enroll thousands, generally. Um, 10 to 20, 30,000 people, half the people might get the vaccine, half the people don't get a vaccine. And then we have to do those trials in areas where the disease is circulating because we want to see how many people in the placebo group got the disease versus people in the vaccine group. And once we have enough cases, we'll say, okay, the vaccine works or it doesn't work. But if it does work, then you have the job of making enough doses of the vaccine to give to people. And it generally takes years before a vaccine um, from that phase three efficacy study. It's reviewed by lots of, of committees to say, should we introduce this? If so, who should get it? That's the big question. Who should get it? Who should get it first? How do we do that? And to make enough doses then to distribute it to the people who need it. When I think of vaccines, you know, as a science educator, I go back to uh, smallpox and cowpox. You know, it's interesting you bring up smallpox. That vaccine um, was made by really taking an infection from a cow and deliberately infecting a person and seeing if it protected against the disease that people get. The word vaccine comes from the word for cow, for crying out loud. That's how successful the thing was. That is absolutely correct. And it, and it really changed, um, you know, the approach to prevention of diseases. Milkmaids who had cowpox didn't get smallpox. So people inferred that, uh, wait a sec, there's got to be some connection here. You know, everybody talks about uh, antibody testing and antibodies and developing antibodies. Isn't it at some level about antibodies? It is. It is absolutely. And I, I you know, it's where that's where we get the term, right? Milkmaid skin because they didn't get smallpox. So they had nice complexion. Oh, I did not but, know. See, there yes, you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it is. And the, the big question, though, is what do we want those antibodies to attack? What is the right target for those antibodies? And that's a big question that we have. Are these the spikes on the outside of the pictures of the Yes, that is exactly what we think for COVID-19. We think that it's those spike proteins that give it the name Corona for crown. We think that those are good targets because those proteins, that's how they enter the cell. They use those spike proteins to get into your cell. So if you can block that, you would in theory be able to block the coronavirus infection. When you say protein, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer, okay? What is a protein? Is it something where a molecule whose shape affects how it reacts with it. It has a structure, right? Absolutely. And that structure, I'm glad you brought that up because that structure is very important, particularly for COVID vaccine development because the shape of that protein, uh, it has a shape as it gets ready to bind to the membrane and it has a shape after, after it binds. And depending on which shape it's in, it can stimulate a good antibody response or a not so good antibody response. So, so that has to take time. I mean, it's a chemical reaction, right? 
This thing has ribonucleic acid, RNA, comes in contact with a cell membrane, and then there's going to be a chemical reaction that takes time. Is that where this latent period comes, where you're infected, but you don't show up, you don't get symptoms rather showing up for a couple days or three days? We're, we're not sure about that. We think that might actually be your immune response sort of going into overgear. This is the cytokine storm. Exactly. Exactly. So your body recognizes the virus. The virus is getting in. It's, it's growing inside of you. Your immune system says, hey, this is bad. I have to attack this. But it goes a little bit overboard for some reason in some people. And again, we don't know all of the answers for everybody, but we think some people, for whatever reason, have an overactive immune response, cytokine storm, that can make them sicker. So the immune response can actually work against you. And I will say for COVID-19, we're a little bit concerned in vaccine development. We want to make sure that when we make a vaccine, we don't overdrive. <laughs> right. We don't want to overdrive. And we don't want to make what we call the wrong kind of immune response because there have been instances with different vaccines, um, particularly inactivated measles vaccine, which we don't use anymore. Um, but we know that that vaccine it induced a good antibody response at first, but those antibodies weren't particularly long-lasting or didn't... Oh, that's one more doggone thing. You may yes. have the antibodies to coronavirus, COVID-19, but then they sort of go away after a while and you can get reinfected. Doggone it. Exactly. You all tell us quite reasonably that the common cold is a coronavirus. That And I, when... Doing the Science Guy show in the day, the best data we had at that time, there's usually about five dozen common cold viruses extant uh, at any any season. There are just about 60 viruses that cause about the same symptoms, right? So if that's a coronavirus and we have no vaccine against those, what makes you think we're going to get a vaccine against this one? Well, I think you have to look at the past. I mean, we, there hasn't been a lot of pressure for a common cold vaccine per se. So we know that it's an annoying illness, you're sick for a few days, but most people, whether they should or should not go to work with a cold, they don't, but they don't die from a cold. They're not hospitalized generally with the cold. So there's not a lot of incentive. Yeah, well now we're incentivized. We have 100,000 people dead. But now we're incentivized. You're confident we're gonna develop a vaccine and you're confident because you know the shape of the proteins on the outside? Right. And we've learned from, from I'm going to call it SARS-1, for lack of a better term, SARS-1 and MERS-related viruses. Severe acute respiratory syndrome and Middle Eastern rep- respiratory syndrome. Exactly. And we learned a lot. People started making vaccines for those, but the diseases went away, so that production stopped. Why did the diseases go away? That's a really good question. For SARS-1, we think it's because it doesn't spread the way SARS-CoV-2 does. It has um, it has a little bit of a different structure, which allows it to bind more easily to cells and then spread more easily. COVID-19 does. Yes, COVID-19. More so than SARS-1. Yes, it's far more infectious spreads far more easily than SARS-CoV-1 did. So we know, for instance, that an effective vaccine, um, it has to be in what we call the pre-fusion shape. And then you get much better antibodies. And those antibodies are able to prevent spread of the virus. So, so what are you doing now? 
to get to the corona vaccine? What's what's going to what's the plan here? So the the plan is and the reason that it's been so accelerated is because these newer technologies like mRNA, so the genetic code, messenger ribonucleic acid. Yes, and it's messenger which means it can just bind directly to the ribosome and then the cellular machinery will make proteins out of that. Simple enough. Sure, simple enough. So how do you get a messenger RNA? So what you do is you look at the sequence, and this is what they've done for the current mRNA vaccine that's about to go into phase three clinical trial. And they looked at the sequence and they created a sequence of mRNA. Who's they, by the way? So the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH. So they learned this from the first SARS and from MERS. So they said, we want the vaccine to be a prefusion protein. We're going to look at the genetic sequence. We're going to make messenger RNA that when it gets into the cell, the cell's machinery will then make a prefusion protein. So what are the two vaccines that are going on right now that everybody's so excited about? Right. The first one is the mRNA vaccine by Moderna. So that's the first vaccine, messenger RNA. What's the second one? Yeah. The second vaccine harkens a little bit back to the cowpox and smallpox vaccine in that we're taking another virus chimpanzee adenovirus. Adenovirus. This is your adenoids, your sinuses? Yes, because it causes colds. It's one of those cold type of viruses. Chimpanzee colds. Yes, but the chimpanzee cold does not give the humans the cold. So it doesn't infect us very well. So we don't get sick from it, but we can put the genetic sequence of the spike protein into the genetic sequence of the chimp adenovirus. And then the chimp adenovirus makes that protein um, after it infects us and expresses it. So your your immune system recognizes that protein. And if it recognizes that, it will recognize COVID-19. Exactly. And the, the nice thing about that, we think, or we hope, is that it is a single-dose vaccine, whereas the RNA vaccines generally are more doses and the Moderna vaccine is two doses. You go to get a shot and you got to wait a couple of weeks and get another shot? You got to wait four weeks. Four weeks. You wait four weeks and then you get a second job. And in those four weeks, you could get infected, right? You could get infected. So what are we doing to accelerate all this? It takes extraordinary efforts and it takes an extraordinary circumstance. So the first thing that accelerated vaccine development, I will say, is the messenger RNA vaccines. Those are very easy and quick to make. So as you said earlier, all you need is the genetic sequence. And when you have the genetic sequence, you can just, uh, you can synthesize that genetic sequence very quickly. What do you synthesize it in? I mean, what do you- So you take amino acids and you have your code, your, your genetic code, and then you have an enzyme that transcribes that DNA into RNA and you save that RNA. Then you inject the messenger RNA into a person. Yep. And then he or she has antibodies? So then the cells of that person will then make protein from that messenger RNA, and that protein will be the conformational spike protein of COVID-19. And that triggers your immune response to recognize that as foreign, as different. And if it sees the COVID-19 virus at a later time, hopefully it will attack it and destroy it. We'll be back right after this. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. So two questions now. In your professional, professional opinion, can it be done in the next year? Or people are throwing out this uh, month, November. November, I think, is overly optimistic. I'll tell you what has to happen. So the first thing we have to do is see if the vaccine works. So Moderna, their first phase one trial was done, I believe, in Seattle, in Washington. Their phase two was done in different sites throughout the country. The phase three is going to be, um, they want to do in many sites throughout the U.S. and enroll around 30,000 people to look at safety and to see if the vaccine will work. And so you do that by giving people very small doses of it. That's what they did at first. And seeing if they get sick. Exactly. That's our phase one, what we and call. phase two, what happens? Phase two is you enroll more people that are, of, I would say, a broader representation of the population. So phase one, we, all, we like those young, healthy, strapping individuals who have really good immune systems. I used to be there. <laughs> and we see if, they, if it's safe. And, and we can only look very, I would say, from a very high level on safety because we're only enrolling 20 or 50 people in those early studies, not a lot. And now you want to go from there to 30,000. And then, right. And from phase one, we go to phase two, which is generally a couple hundred people. And then phase three, which is thousands of people. So in phase three, what we're going to do, we say, okay, now we have to see if it works. Because honestly, Bill, we don't know if antibodies to the spike protein will protect you. We think that they will. We have evidence from animal models to say that they will, but we don't know how many antibodies you need. We don't know how long they need to last. So what we need to do is do a trial with large numbers of people and half of the people get the vaccine, half of the people don't. And then we see if people get COVID-19, how many people in the group that didn't get the vaccine get COVID-19 compared with people who did get the vaccine? But that takes time, right? So that is dependent upon having COVID still circulating in the community and being able to find those cases and enough cases to show whether or not the vaccine works. In your opinion, how long will it be? November 2020 is too aggressive. Five years is too long, maybe? Yeah. Is there a number in between? I will tell you, I think we may know whether or not it works by December, but 
if it works, where does the vaccine come from? How do you produce enough vaccine? And who gets it first? And so on. And who gets it first? To me, that is the real bottleneck because um, we are doing something that, that hasn't really been done before in terms of how we're doing these vaccine trials. So the government is putting forth the resources, the, the greatly needed resources to say, look, we want these vaccines tested. We want them tested um, quickly. And we want to make sure we have enough people in the trials to look at safety. To do that, we need a cooperative effort. We need to find 60 sites to do these trials. By sites, you mean cities, villages? Right. And, and groups to physicians to do the tests, to run the clinical trials. We need to have all of the people working. Well, let me ask you a detail. When you say physicians, are these family doctors, is that where I go to get a test? Or are these trained professionals in immunology or something or other? These are, these are trained professionals. So the National Institutes of Health has different networks that they've used to evaluate in early trials things like different vaccines. They have a vaccine trials evaluation units throughout the country. And then they've had, they have different networks set up to evaluate early AIDS interventions or AIDS vaccines. And, and they want to repurpose these sites to say, look, now we're going to focus on COVID-19. This is what we're going to focus on. All of these sites throughout the country are going to be turned into COVID-19. Who's going to turn them into that? The federal government is going to, through the NIH, there's... Um, this is the deep state at work. Yes. Yeah, so this is the NIH... They've reached out to all of the, what we call principal investigators at the, the different sites, the PIs, PIs who have done these trials. And they said, we need your help. We need people to do clinical trials for these vaccines. We want your site to be a part of that. We're going to do everything we can to get your site ready and working on these vaccines. And they've been working really, really hard to do that. Is this an analog from my old business? You know you're going to build a new airplane. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a new airplane. It's going to advance. So we have a factory. Mm -hmm. And we start building the factory before we know exactly the length, size, and shape, uh, gross takeoff weight, uh, before the plane design is final. When you're going to build a car, you have a factory before you shape the taillight lenses or what have you. That's a great example. So is what we're talking about this process where you're getting systems in place. So when, the, yes. Okay. So is this system in place for both the R the messenger RNA style and the adenovirus style? The vision is, um, and you're absolutely right. We call that proceeding at risk. So we're going to prepare for a phase three trial before we have all of the results back from the phase one trial, right? Generally we wait until we have 12 months of follow-up, the paper's written, it's published, and then we say, okay, now we're going to move on. But now we, they proceeded to start phase two before they even had immunogenicity data back from phase one. This is uh, Project Warp Speed. Exactly. And we're proceeding to phase three before we have all the data back from phase two because we know we can stop at any time. But if we wait for everything, then we're putting ourselves behind the curve. In your professional opinion, then, is it possible that there'll be a vaccine that works, not distributed and manufactured on a large scale, yes. but a vaccine that works by the end of the year, calendar year? I, th I think so. I think we could, we could have data that the vaccine works by the end of the calendar year. And so then how would you manufacture it all proceeding at risk and get it to millions of people like me? 
Yes, that is, in some respects, I think, an even greater challenge. Oh, I'm sure. It, I mean, because, and I do know that that there are resources being allocated to proceed at risk for manufacturers as well. What's a resource when you talk about stuff like this? So dollars. So the federal government is providing dollars to Moderna um, to say, we want you to start your scale up now before we have any evidence that this is mm-hmm. going to work. We want you to build your factory, get your scale up so that you can make that much vaccine. I mean, the the numbers of doses that we're going to need far exceeds anything anybody has done before. How Who gets it first? How do we distribute it? Are you involved in that? Is there a public health, is there a mathematical formula as to who gets it yes. first for mo- to be most effective? So I'll tell you how I think the way it generally works when you have allocation of resources and when vaccines first are introduced, generally they're not available for everyone. And we have different, what we call modelers, mathematical modelers who will say, one, who is at greatest risk? These are people who write software based on infection rates yes. and so on. And so they'll look at who's at greatest risk. Where am I going to make my biggest public health impact with a vaccine? And in my opinion, I look at who is greatly affected with COVID-19, who's getting severe disease. So certainly the elderly, uh, people with comorbid conditions, frontline healthcare workers, people who are at risk. Oh, there you, of course. Yeah. But really looking at if if you look at who is hospitalized with severe COVID, who's dying from severe COVID, that's who you want to get the vaccine to first, because that's where you're going to make your biggest impact in terms of healthcare. Is it going to be another thing where middle class and upper people get it first and poor people in in closed communities where multiple families live together get it last? Is there some scheme to work that gosh i hope not i think i think the way i hope and i you know i don't have any personal inside knowledge on this i would hope given the great public effort to develop this vaccine and to produce this vaccine and by public effort i mean government resources tax dollars that are being put forth that you don't pay for it everybody gets it you get it for free so that you don't have to worry about so socioeconomic disadvantages in terms of how you're going to be vaccinated, whether you're going to be vaccinated or not. I would hope that there would be open clinics, uh, much like we used to do with polio. I, I got the polio vaccine in school, right? Everybody like in school. Yeah. In school. Mm. So if you have, you know, and you didn't pay for anything, you just went into school and you got your polio vaccine. Well, you did pay for it as a taxpayer. Right, as a taxpayer. So it just seems to me in the model of the Spanish flu, your genetic disposition was the key. What, the reason we're here at all, you and I and all the listeners, is our ancestors lived through the Spanish flu, right? Mm-hmm. So it's what you're born with that gives you an advantage or disadvantage, right? Yeah. So how much of that genetic disposition of each person is being taken into account when you develop a vaccine? That's a really good question. And people have looked at, we know that different vaccines work better in different people. And uh, I don't, this may be a little bit complicated, but as part of your immune system, you have what we call HLA types. And these are on your T cells, which are part of the immune cells. This is the uh, leukocyte complex? Yes. And it's, and it varies genetically. And, um, it's, some people have this kind, some people have that kind. It, probably there are dozens of kinds. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that can affect how well you respond 
uh, your immune system responds to any particular vaccine or really any other antigen. We also know, though, that you know, if you look at the people who are getting sick with COVID-19, we know that people who have diabetes, people who have hypertension, people who are overweight seem to do much worse. And whether that is due to those underlying conditions themselves or whether it's due to another genetic component that has led to these other conditions, mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't know. We do know that you can genetically also be less less responsive, your immune system may not work as well. So we know, for instance, that women tend to have better immune systems, better immune responses than men do. And that's that can be good or bad. And we see that in that women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases. The cytokine storm. <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, where your own immune system kind of turns against you a little bit. Um, so there's, and, and it's very difficult sometimes to count for each and every one of those little things, but there is variability in how, on a population basis, how people respond. Speaking of variable genetics and the population and billions of people, (laughs) how seriously, how long in your expert opinion till we get to this mythic herd immunity we'd have to vaccinate six billion people yeah yeah well 80 you know 70 to 80 percent of the people um i'm not sure we're gonna i mean that's gonna in my opinion it's gonna take years i think it's gonna take years before we have enough vaccine to vaccinate everyone it's a tremendous ask to produce billions of doses of vaccine and my guess is it's probably going to take more than one vaccine, meaning we won't be able to produce enough of one vaccine. We'll have to be producing choices, meaning that, say, both vaccines work or three vaccines work. And then you have multiple companies making as much vaccine as they can to produce enough doses to get people vaccinated. But it's the scale is unprecedented. It's bigger than polio? Well, in the time frame. So to ask, you know, uh-huh. we didn't vaccinate the world for polio for probably decades. It took mm. decades. And we still have polio mm. circulating in some countries. And there were fewer than half as many people. Right, right. There were fewer than 3 billion people. Right, exactly. And now we want to vaccinate everybody today. Yeah. So this is a big old challenge. Yeah. As this is a question I like to ask everybody, if you were in charge, <laughs> if you were, as I like to say, queen of the forest, yes. Uh, what would you do? What would you start with? Is there a thing or is there a set of things that you would start with? I'm thinking of two things. I mean, we have to continue this vaccine effort at the scale that we're doing. We have to push forward. There's absolutely no doubt, but we need testing. We need testing, testing, testing. And I think that the real failure um, early on is doing enough testing, finding out who's positive, isolating that person, testing contacts, um, and trying to really contain the spreads. So that's why we're just putting pedal to the metal. Yeah. By that, I mean, we're just going at risk. We're going to investigate two different kinds of vaccines as fast as we can. We're going to prepare to manufacture them even before we have the vaccine. Exactly. We're going to set up means to distribute them. We're going to set up means to determine who should get it first uh, to be most effective for public health. And we're engaged countries around the world in this global effort. Right. Piece of cake. Right. Instead (laughs) of doing everything sequentially, we're doing everything simultaneously. And that's why the timeline is shrinking. 
So, by the way, everybody, just you know, just to remind you, my most recent <laughs> book was Everything All at Once. Exactly. That's what we're doing. Everything <laughs> How nerds all. solve problems. So, you know, there's 20 in the carton. They make great gifts. But thank you. <laughs> Our guest today has been Dr. Anna Durbin. She researches vaccines at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. If you'd like to join the conversation, and I hope you do, uh, leave us a voicemail. Tell us about your experience of this pandemic. The number is 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785. I am Bill Nye, your host today. My friends, this is a pandemic. We are all in this together. And now more than ever, the solutions, the things we're seeking are all science. Now more than ever, science rules. So if you like Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. It helps us tailor the show to what you want to listen to. So thank you. The Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Sandelson. Our engineer is once again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks again to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer, the CCO at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, science rules. A couple more things. Contact tracing, contact tracing, contact tracing. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Thanks for listening, you all. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.